how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. The Man in the High Castle was based on Philip K. Dick's science fiction novel depicting an alternative history where the Axis powers won World War II. Mercifully, this is a what-if scenario which meant production designer Drew Bolton and team had to solve their own complex hybrid equation of addition and subtraction as well as reconstruction to produce this new reality. It's literally des described as world building. He completely remixed history by building three cultures that are somewhat familiar in history, but completely original and grafted onto modern society. In this interview, Balton shares his early love for building sets and creating backdrops, how the industry has changed with CGI, his love for the groundbreaking film Blade Runner, how he begins his process by talking to the director, and many complications in creating a Nazi-centric series. If you enjoyed this interview, please also check out our YouTube series with the same name, Creative Principles. My family uh, ran a, a theater, um, a summer theater when I grew, grew up. So I was, I was basically like a little kid actor and then a little kid carpenter and painter, you know, from basically the time I could, you know, hold a brush or, you know, pick up a saw. What were kind of some of those basic skills you learned, and then how did you realize you wanted to, you know, kind of keep being creative and keep going down that route? So as soon as I was like really able to, I, you know, I really enjoyed building. Um, I really enjoyed uh, building sets and being a carpenter, and and um, so I, I I did that, and then I I kind of I got more interested in painting and uh, painting backdrops and uh, painting sets, and so I eventually. Um, you know, in, in early in high school, I was designing sets for the, for the theater. So I was kind of doing what production designers do, just doing it in a sort of a small theatrical setting. How has your career kind of changed as we kind of got into more and more CGI for certain backdrops and things like that? Basically with, with CG, you can do, uh, so much, so many more changes and adjustments to the, uh, to the world around that, uh, before, I mean, used they used to happen um, by people painting, you know, hand backdrops for, you know, old old plate photography and things. So it's it's always been a been a thing where worlds were built, uh, even pre digital, with fantastic, uh, you know, landscapes or different worlds that were then captured in camera. But now with with digital, it's become something that you can, almost anybody with a little bit of uh, a little bit of, of knowledge and, and equipment can start to do. So it's just expanded the, the possibilities um, really dramatically in a, in a very cool way. 
Outside of what you learned in the theater, what were some of your early inspirations? Like what films really stood out to you for the production design? Uh, I think one of the most uh, influential films, films was Blade Runner. And I saw that when I was, again, I was in high school and I saw it in a little movie theater in uh, rural Vermont. And it was such a, uh, it was such a groundbreaking film on, on many, many levels. And one of them was, it was, it was a look into the future that was not uh, sort of all futurized in the way that so many movies prior to that had looked at the future where everything was totally different and was, 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 you know, all custom manufactured and sterile looking. Um, Blade Runner looked into the future and saw layers of history and uh, and complex cultural phenomenon overlaying things without explanation. And um, it was just a spectacularly rich world. And I just thought, oh, my God, that that's amazing. I want to do that. Um, so, you know, that that's it. Blade Runner was was really groundbreaking. It was one of the first to kind of show that, you know, the advanced technology was, it also showed levels of poverty and everything else. And um, how do you, you know, if you're looking at a screenplay or if you're working on an adaptation, how much of your conversation, do you speak with the writer and director? Or are you mainly getting things from the page? How do you start to kind of create a world when you're looking at something for the first time? It, it sort of depends on, on what you have. Sometimes it's your first conversations with the director. Ideally, you you have a script, and then you, you you read that, and then you go meet with the director to um, you know kind of, to kind of really talk about well you know what do we think about this how do, how do you see it and uh, you know and then and then listening a lot making you know making sure that you hear the other person you know that that what they're trying to get at and then you know sometimes um, I'll come with uh, with research based on what I I felt or thought, and and then present that and see if that resonates for the person. So it it all depends, and you know if when when it's working well, it's like you and that person are 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 in sync, and uh, so then then you just go down the road and try to figure out how you're going to do it. What's kind of maybe the second conversation you have? Do you do you bring like a do you bring sketches, a lookbook? Do you watch fil- like certain clips from films together, or is it like you know whatever works to kind of get your message across and see eye to eye on things? I'd say yeah, yes to all of the above. Um, I bring sketches and I bring research, and we sometimes watch uh, uh, cuts or pieces of film together, uh, and uh, it, it's very. Um, it's just a lot of fun because, you know, you, you find out the things that resonate for, for, for multiple people. You know, sometimes you have a, a, an idea about something. You think, well, I'm the only person who thought that part of that movie was that. And you, and you discover that actually a lot of people do think that. And when you, when you view those clips together, you, you, it really helps unify everything. And you're like, yep, that's what we want to do. We want to do something as good or better than whatever that reference is. How do people kind of go down this route? Um, I mean, do they, do, you, do people usually start in, in theater, or how do you kind of start to build a resume to go in this uh, field that you're in? Some people, uh, there are a lot of people who started in theater, but not all. And some people are, they come to film from architecture. Some come from, uh, from, from film school. And um, so it, it's very interesting. Some people are... are uh, are, are gifted decorators who become really amazing production designers. So there's no, there's no one way to do it. Um, I, you know, I, 
I spent a lot of time working my way up in the art department, and uh, I I would say that's that's an important aspect of it. Is you, you know, a, in a parallel kind of way, a great director of photography um, usually goes up through the system. You know, it, it's in in a, in a very similar way. It's a highly technical, highly um, uh, experience-based profession. So uh, m- most most production designers find their way up that in in one way or another, but they they'll go through that whole process. Is it different working on television shows versus a movie where you're not really there might not be one director, but are you talking to the creator or how, who are you first? Like how did you get involved with the Man in the High Castle? Uh, I I had just done another uh, a pilot for. Uh, um, uh, RSA, and uh, they, they had this next project coming up, and they were talking to a director who I'd worked with before. So it was kind of a coincidence, a happy coincidence, that they were both sort of mentioning my name at the same time for possibly doing the show. So I, uh, that was perfect. Did you feel when you're working on something that's like an adaptation like this, and it's going to be you know possibly for a larger network? What are kind of the um, responsibilities that you have when you're bringing something that's, I mean, historical fiction, you know, to the 10th degree, but how, what were some of your responsibilities coming in? Did you find it more challenging than some of your other work? It was very, very challenging because it, it deals with something that is uh, has tremendous uh, moral importance and uh, and unfortunately relevance to today. It, 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 when we started it, we we had no idea how relevant it was going to be, and that uh, you know that like the, the ability of, of American fascism to flourish. You know, I, the book was written in 1962 at a time when no one really could conceive Nazism in America it, it ever really happening. It just was an absurd notion. And coming coming forward in, in time to today, when we have white supremacists marching and uh, neo-Nazis in the administration. Um, it's uh, it's really, I think, something that probably Philip K. Dick could not have envisioned in 1962 that, you know, in 2018, 2016, that this would, we'd have this issue. So going back to your original question, um, we, all, all the filmmakers, took the subject matter incredibly seriously and uh, not as a um, not as a genre, not as not as a genre sort of uh, tourism thing, but as an as an actually important meditation on on how America can easily become fascist, and as a warning to that. Can you talk a little bit? I've got some notes here. Can you talk a little about the the various worlds in the show, the Japanese Pacific states, the Nazi East Coast, and the neutral zones, and kind of how they differentiate. So, in in each in each case, we set up a, um, you know, look, looking at Eastern Europe and the and the uh, fascist uh, uh, environments, and and basically the look of the streets and the people and everything. You know, we found the kind of a really drained of color. And these are in historical uh, pictures of, you know, East Germany and places like that where, you know, people have been living under fascism for a long time. That there's a lot of, uh, you know, grays and, you know, neutral colors and people aren't, you know, driving uh, cars that are flashy. You know, they don't, those cars don't exist. You can't even buy them if you wanted to. And uh, so taking that as a template for the basic look, plus the uniform colors of, of the Nazi, the 
grays and the blacks and the khakis and things like that, and the uh, red of the flag is the accent color to create that section of the of the look. And then in the imperial Japanese-controlled uh, uh, states, we use the uh, uniform colors of the Kempatai, the uh, horribly feared Kempatai uniform military color, and the uh, aquatic colors of the Pacific area, so that we would get a, a real visual distinction, so that you wouldn't necessarily have to have a title card to tell you where you were. You would kind of know by the feel or the color. So we painted a lot of cars, uh, aqua, a lot of the wardrobe and the costumes of extras have uh, blues and these kind of, you know, Pacific-y kinds of colors, and then the uh, and then the military greens. And then in the center of the country, in the neutral zone, we uh, basically preserved all colors, um, but faded. And we, we took the perspective that in a way, things stopped at the Depression, and uh, and then came World War II, and so those those parts of, of America never really ever recovered from the Depression, because once the war was lost, there was no money or income really to fix anything. So so that's how we we arrived at Cannon City and the other parts of the world being so, you know, 1940s and moldering and kind of you know just faded. And, uh, you know, we looked at some of the photo books of, uh, of Cuba, some of the spectacular coffee table books that, that show how a place can be frozen in time in a really sort of beautiful and photogenic way. And we kind of captured that idea. And we had all colors uh, present in that, in that world. See, obviously, you know, it's an extreme parallel universe type scenario, but how do you kind of decide what the rules are going to be for the aspects you won't change, such as if it's, you know, clothing or cars and things like that? How do you decide, like, well, this really needs to be historically accurate where this is where we can kind of take some room to explore? It was wonderful that we had all these really kind of great conversations with the executive producers, directors, and, and writers, and, you know, to arrive at those things. And you know, de- deciding which which uniforms would have would advanced in time, and you know, coming coming up with which things that would change, and it was it was a kind of an ongoing and wonderful uh, conversation because you know there are certain things that were established by you know who the the conqueror sets the tone, so the conqueror's taste or the conqueror's you know preferences set the tone for everything in our show. So everything in the Smith you know, in the in the Reich world is influenced by the tastes of, of Hitler and Albert Speer. Um, you know, the uniforms of Hugo Boss went went forward in time. And, uh, you know, some were changed a little bit subtly, but also largely the same. And so that, that was very, uh, that was very interesting. And the uh, Imperial Japanese, um, you know, largely stayed very similar to the World War II uniforms. Um, just in in that it's a territorial outpost, and there was not uh, there was not as much of a need to show like external progress in the running of that colony from the perspective of of the empire. There's other aspects too, like um, so uh, certain aspects of this reminded me of like the end of Planet of the Apes. We discovered that it's you know it's Earth by the fallen Statue of Liberty. Um, what made you choose some of these other things, such as the you know Coca-Cola sign or the Empire State Building being altered? Was it mainly territorial, or, or how did you kind of think about those aspects as well? 
When you say the Coca-Cola sign, do uh, you mean the, um... the... It says the neon swastika sticker on the historic Coca-Cola sign. That idea was, you know, in the, in the pilot, you know, the idea that, that they've taken over Times Square and, and they've made it Nazi. And there were various ideas and thoughts. And I just remembered being in New York City in the 70s and 80s and seeing this sort of amazing, huge Coca-Cola sign of red neon. You know, and that, that sign, of course, is red, is red and white. And I thought, well, you know, what what's a more what could be a more Times Square version of an idea than a giant neon sign version of an idea? And so, the idea to have the giant swastika that appears in Times Square and the pilot actually be rendered in neon seemed very uh, that was a very Blade Runner thing to do and a very uniquely American way of interpreting uh, this horrific. Uh, uh, icon. So um, that that's where that came from. And um, and then you were you were asking about the Empire State Building. Right? Um, I think it just says the red stripe down the center of the Empire State Building. Oh yes, that actually is a publicity thing. Yeah, it's not. That's not a thing in our show. <laughs> and and just just for what it's worth, it's because the Empire State Building doesn't allow that um, for legal reasons. Uh, and there, there are lots of uh, lots of things for legal reasons that the show could never do, um, but that's one of them. The uh, you can't do that with that. Are there other un- unknown variables like that that the audience may not know of that you simply can't do for different reasons that you wanted to explore? Maybe like do you have to actually talk to every company that you're going to work with? Yeah, I think it's you know this is it's worth giving the uh, the the there's a there's a department called clearances in in the in the film business, and our show had one of the biggest most uh, worldwide clearance operations because of the content, uh, because of what we're just talking about, and um, so there were there were lawyers in Germany and Japan who spe- specify specialize in in the laws of each of those uh, countries and of course lawyers in the US and then they were uh, coordinated so every object that that went into the show had to be checked uh, with an unusual level of rigorous scrutiny uh, to pre- to prevent uh, you know offense and lawsuits so it was really a, a a huge effort and when the show was initially getting off the ground it was it was quite hard to uh, to get permission to to show essentially the offensive iconography, which is the nightmare of the show, is the reality of this offensive imagery, and so it, it was uh, it was a, it was a heavy lift to get to get to a place where we we could do that, and there were you know numerous examples, that being one of them, where you know the answer was just absolutely not. You're not you're not going to put that iconography on the Empire State Building. Does that require you to kind of come up with, you know, multiple backup ideas, I guess, in case, assuming that many people will say no? Yes. And uh, so there were, there were multiple location ideas for various things. And in some cases, we ended up just building the set. We had tried to find a an interior to be the Nazi embassy in the pilot, and we lost a successive wave of, of locations. And finally, it was decided we just needed to build... Uh, the interior uh, on stage, and then make, create a digital exterior building that never existed, because no building in the Seattle area would allow us to film it uh, with the intention of using it in that way. And that that was not uncommon. We we ended up having to do that a lot. 
That seems so strange. I mean, I assume I understand it all that, but it just seems very odd, especially especially as the show kind of builds up and gets this critical praise and everything else. It depends on the building, right? It's one of the buildings is an icon of American exceptionalism, right? The Empire State Building. Another building we were interested in was uh, the um, um, an art museum in Seattle, and they didn't want that, uh, understandably. And then there's uh, City Hall in Vancouver. And City Hall in Vancouver is a really spectacular-looking building, very 1930s, very, very interesting-looking building. But, of course, it's City Hall. So City, <laughs> City Hall does not want any pictures of City Hall with uh, iconography like that on it. So that's understandable. So we created our own digital version of it. Would there be um, – are, are these examples, are they more from your creative team or do they actually come from the book as well? Like if you had the – if the source material, you know, reference something very specific, would that possibly give you a better chance of, you know, using it for the series as well? It may be, but um, yeah, ultimately it's, you know, it's a, it's a negotiation and people are, you know, depending upon who is, you know, in charge of it, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, we, the, the, the book didn't have any, anything, any sort of strong indications and the script didn't, you know, it's it's very easy. Uh, with with li- the living screenwriters can change the scene and say, okay, it doesn't take place there anymore. <laughs> so, it's so that 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 helps us a lot. I would assume something like this might require more prep work with all that you know all of those variables in place. Um, what does your kind of role look like, like before filming, during filming, after filming? Where do you kind of come in and? And everything else, kind of. What, what does your walkthrough look like for a season? I come in almost immediately after the, the director is hired, to, to because of the the logistics of lo- locating a place to shoot. For example, should it be Vancouver? Should it be Seattle? And in, in the case of this show, it was going to be Vancouver, and then um, there was a uh, Amazon could not film in in Canada for the that first episode, so we had a sudden need to find a place to shoot. And I had uh, spent uh, several years in Seattle and I said, well, you know, there's Seattle, you know, I could go there and check it out. And so I, I did, I went to Seattle for uh, like a three day weekend and just went all over the, uh, all over the city and took photographs, you know, for various uh, sets for the, uh, for the story. And I sent those back to uh, the director and the producers and, you know, uh, Tried, we tried to figure out how we could uh, how we could do it. So so I so I was in very early. Were there any challenges that you faced with this show that we haven't discussed, or anything else you'd like to mention about your work on the series? No, I, I think that that pretty well uh, pretty well sums it up. I um, it uh, yeah, it was it was an absolutely wonderful opportunity and uh, just a, a terrifically interesting. Uh, interesting show and what i loved most about it was the conversations that i would have with all the different directors and writers about about the world it was just really a, a deeply interesting if for a person who has who loves history as i do um it's just a fascinating thing to think about discuss and work in thank you for tuning into this show if this is your first time listening Please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. 
Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the news YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.